note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. There is help. It's March 14, 1969, and Jan Sorensen can tell something's wrong with her boss, Professor Thomas Rhea. He's at her child's birthday party, but he's acting like he can't wait for it to be over. Thomas usually loves young people, but tonight he's anxious. To Jan, he seems to be waiting for something, like he's harboring a dark secret that's eating him from the inside. But she can't get much out of him until the party's over. At that point, Thomas corners her. He says he's concerned someone's following him. While he doesn't give many details, he's acting strangely enough to worry Jan. She tells him he can stay over if he needs to. Thomas declines the offer. About 30 minutes past midnight on Saturday, March 15th, he leaves her place and walks out into the freezing Colorado winter. He's never seen again. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet Thomas Rhea. In 1969, the globe-trotting history professor suddenly vanished, and despite the involvement of both the CIA and the FBI, he was never found. At least, that's the official story. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Before we dive in, I want to acknowledge that this story is messy. Most of the information you're about to hear comes from interviews and documents collected by journalist Eileen Wellsom in her book, Cold War Secrets. Despite all the work she's done to find out what really happened to Thomas Rhea, the final picture is still hazy. At points, it's hard to know who's telling the truth, even when it comes to the highest branches of the United States government. Keep that in mind as you listen. I'm going to start this story through the eyes of Thomas Rhea and those who had their eyes on him. 
It's the 1950s, and the US is in the first throes of the Cold War. At this point, the CIA isn't just focused on keeping tabs on the Soviet Union. It wants agents in every country that's fallen under the influence of communism, including Thomas's homeland, Czechoslovakia. Thomas hasn't been back in a while. He went to college in California and is getting his PhD in Russian history at Harvard, so he's pretty busy these days. But in 1958, he travels to Prague to visit his father, and it doesn't take long for him to notice he's being followed. Not that the guy watching him is trying to keep a low profile. Actually, it's pretty obvious that he's a tail. Every time Thomas steps out onto the street, there he is, waiting to offer Thomas a ride. He hangs out on the front stoop when Thomas visits a family friend. The whole time he's trying to chat Thomas up, asks if he would consider moving back to Czechoslovakia. He implies that Thomas could make a good living as a spy, and the guy is willing to wheel and deal. He snags Thomas special permission to visit a library that's closed to the public. He even offers him a house if he moves back. Thomas says no, and mostly seems to take the proposal as a lighthearted joke. He comes back to America in 1959, but a year later, the FBI shows up at his door. Now they tell him they want him to go back to Eastern Europe. It seems they want to turn him into a double agent, but apparently he turns them down. Instead, Thomas lands a cushy job at the University of Chicago. A few years later, he's on the move again, this time out west to the University of Colorado Boulder to teach Russian history. By this point, Thomas is approaching middle age and he's built a nice life for himself. Since immigrating from Czechoslovakia, he's gotten his American citizenship, fought for the US during the Korean War and become a successful academic. He's worldly and suave, fluent in five languages and by all accounts, incredibly charismatic. Despite moving around so much, he easily makes friends wherever he goes. And yet there's something missing, a family of his own. In 1968, when Thomas is about 39, he meets a Czech woman in her mid-20s named Hanna Herskova while visiting New York and quickly falls in love with her. She comes to live with him in Boulder and they marry within the year. Things go great at first, but within a few weeks, the red flags are waving. Thomas turns cold. He complains about the dishes, the house, the cooking, you name it. And that's in part thanks to the other woman in his life, Galia Tenenbaum. Now, we need to pull over and talk about Galia for a couple of reasons. First, nobody really knows what's going on with her and Thomas, but they're incredibly close. And second, she's about to drive a truck through his and Hannah's lives. Galia was actually born Gloria Forrest. During her childhood, she suffered severe physical and mental abuse. She was married a couple of times and had children, but never really put down roots. At times throughout her life, she showed signs of psychological disturbance, and at one point was even investigated for impersonating an FBI agent. But for the most part, people see her as harmless, albeit a bit off. According to Galia, she first met Thomas when he was a college student in California and reconnected with him right before he transferred to Boulder. That's when they seemed to get really close because she followed him to Colorado. They didn't move in together or anything, but it still seemed like a big jump. Truthfully, the nature of their relationship is difficult to pin down. Some people think they're romantic. Others say they're just good friends. Whatever the case, Galia has a kind of hold over him. And now that Thomas is married, she hates the idea of playing second fiddle to Hannah. 
She encourages Thomas's put-downs and generally makes Hannah's life even more of a nightmare than it already is. After being together for just a few months, both Hannah and Thomas are pretty much through with each other. But it's Thomas who files for annulment in the winter of 1969. Oddly enough, he accuses Hannah of being cruel to him. I don't know why he would say that, but she doesn't seem too worried about it. Hannah's been in the process of applying for US citizenship for a while now. With her and Thomas splitting up, it's probably important to get it taken care of sooner rather than later. On the evening of March 7th, Hannah's head first in some complicated paperwork. With nowhere else to go, she's still living at Thomas's place, although they sleep in separate rooms and are basically estranged. At some point, Gallia stops by. A few weeks ago, she offered to help Hannah with her immigration application. It was an unusually nice offer, but she claims to have friends in high places and Hannah's desperate. She'll take whatever help she can get, even if it's from Gallia. After talking for a bit, the two women end up in a car together while Thomas stays home. Gallia brings up the immigration stuff again. She needs Hannah to sign a few documents, but Hannah wants to talk to her lawyer first. It sounds like a pretty sensible answer, but for some reason, it absolutely infuriates Gallia. She freaks out and insists Hanna sign the paper right away. She even threatens to have her deported back to Czechoslovakia if she doesn't. Unsure of what to do, Hanna eventually agrees to call her lawyer. That way, Gallia can talk to him directly and hopefully figure out this whole mess. Gallia stops at a restaurant to use a phone and just goes off on Hanna's lawyer. She's yelling so loudly that it's hard for him to even understand what she's asking. Once he finally gets the picture, he says Hannah will sign the documents within a couple days. The immigration offices are closed for the weekend anyway. That is not what Gallia wants to hear, but Hannah can't understand why Gallia is so upset. Up to this point, all she's done is talk big and collect a bunch of Hannah's personal information. So why is she suddenly so dead set on getting these particular documents signed? And why does it have to be done that night? It doesn't make any sense unless Gallia doesn't think Hana will be around to sign them in a few days. After leaving the restaurant, the ordeal continues. Gallia refuses to take Hana home to Boulder. Instead, she drives in the opposite direction toward Denver. Hana begs to be let out, but Gallia won't budge. She tells Hana she's going to die. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On the night of March 7th, 1969, Thomas Ria's soon-to-be ex-wife, Hannah Herskova, is living a nightmare. She's stuck in a car with Thomas's friend, Galia Tenenbaum, who seems to be growing more unhinged by the moment. She threatens Hannah's life. Then she says she's excited to play with Hannah. At some point, she even makes her take what Galia says is some kind of sleeping pill. Hannah's absolutely terrified especially because Galia's mood keeps changing at the drop of a hat. One second, she's threatening her. The next, she's overly friendly. Eventually, she agrees to take Hana back to Thomas's place. They get there by 10 p.m. As Hana tells it, she runs straight to her bedroom and locks the door. By this point, she's convinced Galia wants her dead. She expects Thomas to throw Galia out of the house, but instead, he wants them to talk it out as a group. After six hours in the car with Galia, Hannah's through with talking. She refuses to come out of the room and hears Thomas and Galia having a loud argument outside. Eventually, when it seems like Galia's finally gone, Hannah settles down to get some sleep. She doesn't know what time she wakes up, but when she does, there's a rancid chemical smell coming from the vents and she hears Thomas and Galia on the other side of the door. Now Galia's claiming to have a gun. Hannah has no clue what's going on. Thomas is trying to calm her down, but she doesn't trust him. It seems like he's going along with whatever Galia has planned. So she throws open the bedroom window and starts screaming for help. Thomas runs around the side of the house and tries to get in through the window, but a neighbor hears the commotion. They run outside and stop Thomas before he can climb in. He bumbles some excuses, but the neighbor can smell the strange chemical on him and Galia someone calls the police. When they arrive, Galia tells them Hana's an illegal immigrant who's using drugs. One of the officers finds a jar of ether under the blankets in Hana's room. It seems like Galia and Thomas are implying that Hana took the ether, then freaked out. Hana's standing down there denying the whole thing, bawling her eyes out, swearing up and down that Thomas and Galia are trying to kill her. The police can't make heads or tails of the situation. In the end, they chalk it up to some weird interpersonal spat and leave. Hana goes to a hotel. A couple days later, Hana gives her lawyer a deposition about the other night. Meanwhile, Thomas and Galia are acting like nothing happened. Thomas keeps teaching his classes. The two of them go out to dinner with friends. Everything seems fine. Then on Friday night, Thomas is at his friend Jan's house for her kid's birthday party. He's acting really weird. After the party wraps up, he tells Jan someone might be following him. It's the last known conversation he ever has. Just after midnight on March 15th, 1969, Thomas leaves to go home and disappears. The next few days are almost as confusing as last weekend. Almost right away, one of Thomas's neighbors realizes he's gone. A few colleagues notice he's not at an academic symposium he was supposed to go to. He misses lunch plans with friends. Just when the people in Thomas's life are growing concerned, his attorney gets a letter. It's signed Thomas. Apparently, he just up and left Boulder on some sort of whim. Around the same time, Thomas contacts a local real estate agency. 
He asked them to sell his house, making sure to earmark a portion of the sale for Gallia Tannenbaum, who lent him $7,000 for the down payment. He's adamant that she's paid back in full. Thomas's friends are suspicious. Even if he did reach out to his lawyer and this real estate agency, he hasn't reached out to them. Something feels off. They contact law enforcement to see if they have more information. This is where things get sticky. The Boulder PD tells Thomas's friends that he's perfectly fine. It's hard to pinpoint where this story comes from, but the district attorney, immigration, and even the FBI all seem to agree. There's no need to worry about Thomas Rhea. It's the same story no matter who tries to get the answers. The president of the University of Colorado, where Thomas teaches, stops asking questions after he's assured everything's under control, though it's unclear who told him that. But when another week goes by with no word from Thomas, some of his friends take matters into their own hands. On April 4th, 1969, 20 days after Thomas disappears, they visit the police station to file a missing persons report. Later that day, they hear from an officer. He can't go into specifics, but Thomas is alive and well. He doesn't tell them that he took the report to his supervisor, who had it torn up. It's been weeks since his friends spoke to Thomas, and all they're getting from detectives are frustrating half answers. If the authorities won't help, what can they do? But here's the thing. The day after the missing persons report is filed, April 5th, records show that both the CIA and the FBI look into Thomas's case. Then on April 8th, a CIA agent attempts to escalate the case to his supervisor. In response, he's told that Thomas is in New York and the agency shouldn't be involved any further. Their explanation is that Thomas left his house, job, and friends behind with no notice because of a, quote, domestic problem. The story doesn't make much sense to any of his friends, except Gallia. She tells a local journalist that she's been in regular contact with Thomas, so she knows he's safe. Which, if true, only leads to more questions. Like, why would Thomas write to Gallia, but leave nearly everyone else in the dark, including his own mother? Not only is Gallia among his only points of contact, but she seems to be the only person he trusts to take care of his personal affairs. She claims Thomas asked her to get rid of his things, so she donates his art and books to Loretto Heights College in Denver. Later, she sells his car. Meanwhile, Thomas or someone claiming to be him is sending out a flurry of letters. Some go to the real estate agency that's selling his home, others to the publishing company that released his book. He asks him to send the rest of his royalty checks to Gallia's address. And even though the CIA said that Thomas is in New York, many of the letters have Canadian postmarks, including one that Gallia hand delivers to the University of Colorado, informing them that Thomas isn't coming back for the fall semester. As far as I can tell, Gallia doesn't seem upset that he's gone, but she is missing his company. There's a gap where one of her closest friends used to be, and she's determined to fill it. Somehow, she later connects with a 78-year-old inventor named Gustav Ingversen. Later on, she writes that she started to think of the elderly man as family. On June 15th, they celebrate Father's Day together. Two days later, Gustav's supposed to meet her for dinner, but he never shows. The next morning, his neighbor finds him dead at his home. He's all dressed up as if he's about to go out for a nice dinner. 
There's no sign of a struggle, but the garnet ring he almost always wore is missing. The coroner rules that Gustav died of natural causes, but his family isn't so sure, especially when they learn that he recently filed a new will and named Gallia and one of her children as beneficiaries. They go to the police and arrange for an autopsy. It shows that Gustav most likely died from potassium cyanide poisoning, not natural causes. A detective interviews Gallia in connection to the inventor's death. He says she chooses her words carefully, mixing fact with just the right amount of exaggeration. He later compares her to a con artist. At some point during the investigation, Gallia reaches out to one of Gustav's relatives. She explains that she recently gave Gustav an old wedding band and asked Gustav to remove the inscription. Now she wants it back. The relative finds the ring a few days later. The inscription is still clear. It reads, Hannah to Thomas, 13 October 68. At this point, Thomas Rhea has been missing for about three months. The Boulder PD has been assured that he's fine, but the discovery of this ring changes everything. Now the PD is coming to terms with the idea that they might've been misinformed. So they finally move forward with their own investigation into the disappearance of Thomas Rhea. They search Gustav's home and yard looking for Thomas's body. Meanwhile, Gallia is still out there. Based on everything we know, she doesn't seem concerned that she's clearly a suspect in a murder investigation. With both Thomas and Gustav out of the picture, she moves on to another friend, Barbara Egbert. The two originally met through Gustav, but grow closer after his death. Most people in Barbara's life think she's doing well. She's happy, but Gallia doesn't agree. She senses something is deeply wrong with her friend. After Barbara stands her up for dinner on September 12th, Gallia calls her ex-husband and urges him to check up on her. They don't understand what she's so anxious about, but they ask her apartment building's owner to do a wellness check. He finds Barbara dead on the floor. There's a note, so detectives assume she died by suicide. But then they notice the letter's typed, not handwritten, which is really unusual. So they order an autopsy. And wouldn't you know it, the coroner finds that Barbara died of sodium cyanide poisoning. That means two of Gallia's friends have died under eerily similar circumstances within the span of a few months. And Thomas Rhea is still nowhere to be found. After Barbara Egbert's death, Denver police call in Gallia Tannenbaum for questioning. She tells them that Barbara had a whole host of psychological issues that no one else knew about, but police are more interested in Gallia. They wanna know if she has access to cyanide. She eagerly tells them that she does. She explains that her husband uses the chemical for photography and adds that she used to live with Gustav Ingersen. Apparently, the inventor used cyanides in his experiments. Her response is odd, mostly because none of it is true. Gallia isn't married to a photographer. She isn't married, period. And she never lived with Gustav either. I'm not sure why she lies, and neither are authorities, but they can't ignore the red flags any longer. They link her to the murders of Gustav Ingversen and Barbara Egbert. Thomas Rhea is still missing, but there isn't any evidence to definitively connect Gallia to his death. That's partially because at this point, no one really knows who's supposed to be handling the case. The FBI and CIA still seem to think he's alive and well, 
and they're stonewalling the Boulder PD at every turn. A couple of Denver detectives go directly to an FBI office to get some answers, but they don't learn much. They press for information about Galia, but the agent they speak to is vague. All he tells them is that she's been reported for impersonating FBI officials before. He doesn't mention that the Bureau is investigating Galia at this very moment. So the detectives leave and try to make do on their own. They officially designate Galia as the prime suspect in Gustav and Barbara's deaths. And once it's fairly obvious she's hiding something, information comes in hot and heavy. The two alleged witnesses to Gustav's will recant their signatures. One claims the document was forged. He says Galia conned him into signing it after the fact. In October, Galia is charged with forgery while police build up their poisoning case against her. The cops search her house and find cyanide. She manages to get out of jail on bond, but the walls are closing in. And I mean, they're really closing in. In January, a local reporter, Fred Gillies, does a story on Thomas Rhea's disappearance. He writes that law enforcement fumbled the initial investigation. Some sort of weird misinformation loop has been happening between the Colorado police, the FBI, and the CIA. After the article comes out, a few politicians try to dig a little deeper. From there, it becomes one big blame game. Local authorities say that they've been assured by intelligence agencies that Thomas is okay. That's why they haven't aggressively pursued the case. The CIA claims the FBI looked into the disappearance and didn't find anything suspicious. The FBI insists the CIA made a mistake. They never said that. Each side tries to pin the so-called alive and well rumor on the others. While all of this is going on, Galia's doing court for will forgery. But two days after her police interview, she pleads innocent by reason of insanity. She makes the same plea a month later when she's hit with another forgery charge. By February 1970, a judge orders her to be taken to a psychiatric hospital. She's a difficult patient. She refuses to tell the truth and repeatedly insists that she's a retired colonel with experience in military intelligence. In the end, a Dr. Roland Brett determines that she's not insane, although she does have a tendency toward pathological lying. So in March, she's transferred from the hospital to jail. That July, she goes on trial for the second forgery charge. The judge rules that she's criminally insane. The verdict doesn't change anything about her ongoing legal battles, but it does mean Galia's sentenced to stay at a mental institution, indefinitely. With Galia in the hospital, the investigation into Gustav and Barbara's death slow down. There's less urgency to charge Galia with murder since she's already confined. Still, she doesn't seem to be helping her case. At times, she claims she has salacious information about the crime she's been accused of. At one point, she even confesses to killing Thomas Rhea. At others, she swears he's still alive. All of this is happening in between a slew of legal hearings, which definitely aren't going her way. Galia feels more and more hemmed in, stuck inside the hospital. On March 7th, 1970, Galia Tannenbaum dies by suicide. After Galia's death, the investigations into her alleged murders and Thomas Rhea's disappearance gradually peter out. Many people, including the detectives who worked on the cases, believe Galia most likely poisoned Gustav and Barbara. They think she probably did the same to Thomas Rhea, but since his body's never been found, they can't say for sure. Still, the question remains, why? 
We may never know. But hidden among a slew of formally classified FBI documents is a clue. Among her many lies, there was a kernel of truth. It turns out Gallia actually did work for the FBI, at least for a little while. According to their files, Gallia was an informant in the 1950s after she supposedly witnessed a town mayor tampering with a local election. That might've been the beginning and end of her work for the FBI, but journalist Eileen Wilson thinks it's possible she continued to act as an informant. At the time, the Bureau was investigating communist activity in the US. While living in Chicago, Gallia just so happened to get cozy with a few obscure members of the Communist Party USA. After that, she got to know Thomas Rhea, a Russian history professor who the FBI knew was asked to be a Czech spy. Again, this is all speculation, but if Gallia was acting on FBI orders, it could explain why she left her life behind in Chicago to suddenly join Thomas in Boulder. But that doesn't explain her strange behavior once she got to Colorado, like why she threatened Hanna Herskova. For her part, Hanna believes Thomas might have asked Gallia to help hide his assets before their marriage ended. Things escalated. Then that night at his house, they tried to flood Hanna's bedroom with ether. Hanna thinks that when it didn't kill her, Gallia got rid of Thomas so he couldn't turn her into the police. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, there are parts of this case that don't make a whole lot of sense. At times, it's hard to understand why the people involved did the things they did especially because Hana's theory is just one possible explanation. It's still not clear why the CIA and FBI seemed to stonewall detectives after Thomas vanished. Maybe they really did have reason to believe he was still alive. We don't know. Even after sorting through hundreds of declassified documents, journalist Eileen Wilson still can't say for sure. She does have a theory though. She thinks the FBI and the CIA initially discouraged local police from looking into Thomas's disappearance because they wanted to conduct their own investigation. That might be where the alive and well rumor came from. A few months later, when Gallia was connected to Gustav and Barbara's poisonings, they realized they made a mistake. Instead of coming clean, one or both of the agencies tried to cover their tracks. And while it's past time for the truth, whatever it is to come out, closure might be difficult for Thomas's family to come by. According to Eileen Wilson, the Czech secret police had a file on Thomas, but it's largely been destroyed. The Boulder police supposedly recovered his passport from Gallia's house, but for some reason, that's gone too. Back in the 1970s, Freedom of Information Act requests were filed with the CIA. They refused to reveal the names of the agents involved in investigating Thomas's disappearance. A US district court judge upheld their secrecy. At this point, all we can do is continue to raise questions and demand accountability. Whether or not the government believes an investigation could expose inconvenient secrets, Thomas Rhea's family and friends deserve to know the truth. They deserve better. And so does Thomas. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the book Cold War Secrets by Eileen Wilson incredibly helpful. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. 
For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brarow. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Tara Wells, edited by Natalie Persofsky, Connor Sampson, and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, research by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.